This is Katie Zapanta. And this is Christina Pullen. And we're here to introduce episode three of our podcast, Tartans Watch the Watchmen. The title of our podcast comes from a line in the Watchmen comic, Who Will Watch the Watchmen? Our answer, Tartans Will Watch the Watchmen. The creator of the original Watchmen comic, Alan Moore, said that this question is part of the overarching theme of the Watchmen series, which is, what are the effects of power upon society? Today's episode of Tartans Watch the Watchmen is all about the power of music and also the power of choosing and composing music to accompany the dramatic aspects of HBO's Watchmen. In the first part of this podcast, we will hear an interview that two of our classmates did with Liza Richardson. Liza was the music supervisor for HBO's Watchmen. Katie, what does a music supervisor even do? Music supervisors work with directors to suggest previously recorded songs, and also they do the work to buy the rights to use that song. As you will hear in this interview, Liza explains how she balances the director's needs for certain kinds of songs with the production's overall budget, how she researches the music, and where she gets her ideas and inspiration. We are so psyched that Liza is a part of our podcast. Liza is also a DJ, and she works for the Santa Monica radio station, KCRW. She also leads a team called Mad Doll Music, and together, they have supervised the music for TV shows, including HBO's Watchmen, Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, Hawaii Five-0, and Lovecraft Country. Check out the rest of Liza's CV on www.lizarichardson.tv. Interviewing Liza are two of our classmates, Emily Finger and Max Robbins. Emily is a sophomore film and visual media major. She took this class because she was excited to apply her critical thinking skills to contemporary television. Emily also plays third base on CMU's softball team. Max Robbins is graduating this spring with a joint degree in music and psychology. He took this class because he enjoys creativity and freedom of doing independent research. Though Max is going to continue on with graduate school in psychology, his composing skills are on display right here in this podcast. He wrote the music we are using in our intros and outros. Max is clearly very talented. Let's listen in on their discussion with Liza. I had read that you majored in dance, and I was wondering how or if that background uh, influenced your musical choices for um, the show or any shows (laughs) so I majored in theater and dance was my minor and but yeah my whole growing up um I definitely danced (laughs) I was pretty um passionate about ballet modern tap jazz dance um and uh, musical theater and so I yeah I think musical theater was the earliest thing that really got me super interested in, you know, music period. I think that was probably my gateway drug, you know, Um, but 
I wouldn't call myself a musical theater expert anymore. You know, I had my own favorites, which were like hair, gospel, uh, Godspell, sorry, um, Cats, um, West Side Story. But like a lot of the more modern um, musicals, I'm just not that good at. But um, so I, I can't say that it had a major influence on my musical choices, musical theater. Um, and then with classical, you know, ballet and stuff, sure. But it's not like I'm an expert on classical music. <laughs> but um, but sure, I mean, I completely react to things like African music and Latin music and drums and cool drums. And, and so I, that probably comes back to my uh, roots as a dancer, I would think. Um, they're, they're really not super, super related but but I have such passion and nostalgia and love for my past dancing stuff that I'm sure it seeps into all my musical stuff and work. <laughs> cool. I, I love those musicals too. Yeah. <laughs> um. So was oh um I I would have to ask was Oklahoma something that you would like before like what what was your thought process with Oklahoma that? I love Oklahoma but no you know that was written into the script it wasn't my idea you know the show oh, no yeah the show I mean that's one thing I really have to um make sure that young people understand and that is that you know a lot of major themes and big ideas that are um that you see and say for example Watchmen you know, those are conceived pretty early on and they are from script stage. And I didn't even work on the pilot for Watchmen um, because um, I, it wasn't budgeted to have a music supervisor. So I was hired after the pilot was shot. And I did end up redoing a lot of the pilot, but you know, all, all that on-camera music for Oklahoma and stuff, that was decided on long before I started. Yeah, but I, I think it's amazing. And yeah, that's another musical I love too. Totally. What great music. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, we were just wondering what your general process for selecting music was uh, in the series or just in other series that you've worked with. Well, every project that I work on is a little bit different. And um, so there's always a different kind of culture and process for each one. But in general, I would say that, you know, you start with the script. That's your blueprint or your map. From the script, you break down the script and you make a chart that lists any possible music spot that could possibly be in there. Like if maybe there is a montage, you put that on the chart. Um, if there are scenes that take place in uh, places that naturally would have music, like let's say a restaurant or, you know, you're somewhere where, you know, there's definitely gonna be music. You kind of put that in the chart, you list everything that is possible. And you know, you put the scene number, the the scene description in one column, and then in another column you have music notes. And then you have you have uh, the song name, the artist name, um, the length of use, the estimate price, um, and then the actual price column. 
And then, so once you have your chart put together, it's really important to start mapping out the prices, figure out what your overall budget is for the episode so that you can sort of, as you go along and you work on the different phases of production, like script into shooting, into post-production, into studio cut, network cut, and on and on, then the chart evolves as the show evolves and the, and the songs begin to take shape. You know how much money you have, and that's how I do it. Cool. So um, is, it, is it usually how it goes um, that you'll begin this process, like before even seeing anything on film, it always starts with that script? For me, yeah. I mean, yeah. It it always starts with the script, um, because you know, if there is music that needs to be on camera, you know, somebody singing along, a band playing in the background, um, uh, a wedding, um, you know, a concert, you know. Any there's always there's so often music that you see on camera. Those choices that you see on camera, those musical choices and that music totally needs to be thought through in advance because ultimately it will be tied to picture. Um, you can't really change it. So you have to think it through very carefully prior to shooting. But so much music is applied during post. So so that is, you know, that you wait, you know, pretty much you, I try to wait until post because that's when you know more about how much money you're going to have. And, you know, uh, you probably have, you know, I like to work in, try songs with picture in post. That way I can see what's happening. I can see like the choices that they've been making, like for instance, casting, um, the way the set looks, um, the costumes, all the different nuances help inform, you know, you can kind of tell the way they shot it, the colors that they're focusing on. Is it complex or is it really like primary colors? Is it, is there a level of irony in the, is there humor or is it, is it more dramatic? Is it serious? You can tell the different levels of, of um, humor by looking at pictures. So, so most of the choices, I would say 75% of most choices depends on the show are made during post and but it's those songs that are going to be married to picture that you have to worry about ahead of time so yeah i i i definitely start with the script but i just kind of keep an eye on everything along the way cool yeah that makes a lot of sense um and kind of going off of that i was wondering what your thought process was in watchmen um, mixing popular music in the soundtrack with this like newly composed music of the show with Trent and like when um, you decided when to use this popular music versus um, having him write some new music um, and what role like maybe licensing plays into that. So when you say um, um, Trent and Atticus writing new music, do you mean um, for songs or for score? Score. Yeah, score is, um, so I don't really decide that. That's, it's called spotting. And um, I may have some spotting suggestions, but it's really the director, the showrunner, the producers that, and really the editors from the beginning, the editors start getting in footage and they get, they get dailies and they start wrestling around with those scenes and 
they are the ones that have that initial reaction, like, oh, we need a song here, or oh, this is definitely a score spot. Sometimes it could work both ways. It could be a song or it could be a score uh, spot. Um, so, but usually it's the editor that gives that first impression and the, the picture editor. And then the, the picture editor usually kind of has to be good at temping score or they don't have to be, but it's definitely a plus when uh, a picture editor can work with um, like, but usually like for instance, at the beginning of Watchmen process, Trent and Atticus, you know, they provided a lot of their past scores to use as temp for Watchmen. That's a very common scenario. When you hire a composer, you get a library of all their stuff and you use it to temp. But then, you know, they're, they're such, uh, you know, incredible composers. You know, they really want to be able to um, get a sound going from the beginning. So they're going to probably be working on sketches really early with the editor and um, and creating a new sound. They're, they're not going to want us to rely on their past scores. Like you don't want it to sound all like social network going into Watchmen, you know. So um, so they're so, you know, they they give material pretty early on. Um, yeah. Cool. Um Totally. Um, so our, our next question was, um, so what kind of work goes into making the your musical choices historically accurate and representative of the time period when you're working? Ooh, ooh I like that question. Nerd question. Um, we, we're just nerd. We like to be nerds. We like to be really accurate. We like to, we love research. Research is what's fun for us. We love to confirm dates and we like to know all the writer information. And we sometimes, you know, memorize like catalog numbers. <laughs> um, so no, we just, we really, I, I mean, I, I have an amazing team of music supervisors, um, coordinator, I have a couple outside music supervisors I work with sometimes and and my clearance department is just like unbelievable. So we are very, very careful about time frame if it's important to the story. If it's not important to the story, then we're a little looser about it, but we're pretty close generally. Um, but if you, it just depends on like, I work on the show Narcos um, and that was always, that's always been just by the book when it comes to release dates and, and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, for instance, in Watchmen, the episode 106, it was roughly, now I'm forgetting the exact year that it was set, but but I mean, we were just looking for mostly music from the 40s and 50s. We weren't, we weren't like, uh, what's the word? Um, we, we weren't religious about the exact dates. I don't think. I'm trying to remember. It's been a while. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I just love all that stuff. Um, and I, I'm always asking that question to my, to my directors and showrunners and stuff. I'm like, 
you know, how important is this? How close, how accurate do you want to be? But we, and same with culturally accurate, you know, especially in American and Latin music, there's so much crossover into other cultures, you know, Puerto Rican music was popular in Mexico. Um, you know, there were certain Mexican singers that were popular across Latin America. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stick to an exact region. But if you're trying to tell a story and you're saying, hey, we're at the border, then you might want to signify that fact through music. And therefore, you do need something exactly regional. So, you know, it just depends. But I would say the timestamp and the regional stamp are something that we definitely take into consideration. And we really try to understand different cultures. Um, and that's, that's really the fun part. One of the main fun parts for me is the cultural significance and diversity and also um, stamp, you know, that mark. Yeah, that's great. I was going to ask uh, if you looked into the kind of cultural history or background of a song before you select it, um, or if you kind of focus more on whether it fits the kind of ambiance of a scene and which is more important. Because um, I think with a show like Watchmen, um, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, almost political statements being made mm -hmm. and whether those songs fit that message that the show is trying to send. Oh, absolutely. Good, good observation, really, because um, we're always, again, it depends on what's needed for the scene, if that's important to the scene or if it's not. But we're always checking on song meaning, song lyrics, especially if it's in another language that we don't understand. We're, we're, we're translating, we're making sure we're on the right track. We're very careful about that because it's important um, for sure. For this class, I focus generally on the song um, in episode 106, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire by the Ink Spots. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could just describe the process of selecting that, if there was any meaning behind that selection. Yes. I mean, it started out as, um, you know, Damon coming to me and saying, hey, put together some playlists of amazing songs um, from the era that kind of focus, I mean, I love, I love working with him because he always gives me a really neat, like, kind of, he narrows the universe a little bit. So I'm just not looking at like the entire world. Um, but like, he'll say, uh, we need, let's, let's focus on songs about like time, nostalgia, forgetting, remembering, um, and I think what happened with, with I Want to Set the World on Fire is that there was a song by the Ink Spots that had one of those themes. And I think he tried it and he realized, you know, like, great, the Ink Spots just sound so great. And so then he ended up wanting to do more than one Ink Spot song. And, and then we had the fire <laughs> and then they tried that i mean um smoke gets in your eyes is another song not by the ink spots but by um eartha kit i believe um and uh you know so you start exploring these thematic ideas lyrically uh with the you know in editorial 
and then you're just like, oh my God, that works, you know, and you click, you hit on something. I, I would say that a lot of great things that come out of that episode or any cool episode musically are by accident or by experiment or not necessarily totally premeditated, unless, like I said before, if it's a really big idea, then sometimes it's scripted. But in that episode, those songs were not scripted. Those were those came along during post and through experimentation and and that kind of thing. So, um, but I also remember that song also by the Ink Spots, um, "We Three. and I thought that was cool because it's like he has like three different lives, you know, uh, or you know, multiple lives. I think the choice of the ink spots and um, came out of experimentation, looking around at the artists of the time. And then the, the I don't want to set the world on fire song was a result of looking at their catalog. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, focusing on the ink spots. Um, I was wondering if it was an intentional choice because uh the ink spots is similar to the theme of ink blots shown in like the Rorschach mask. I was wondering if that was an intentional choice or just a happy accident. Never thought of that. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> Never thought of that. I love it. I love stuff like that. And I wonder if Damon thought of that, but I don't, I kind of doubt it. Okay, cool. That was like something I've been thinking about. Every That's day. amazing. That's amazing. No, I don't think so. Awesome. But it's cool. Um, so yeah, um, going on, um, I've, I've been really obsessed with Trent and Atticus and I love all, of, like I love Social Network and Soul just at the Oscars is awesome. Um, yeah. So that got me really interested in the jazz aspect of the whole like, <laughs> Will Reeves flashback episode. Um, and I'd like read that like Trent didn't have a lot of experience or background in writing jazz. And I was wondering um, in your work, um, how are like these specific jazz selections chosen? Um, probably also goes back to like you fitting the time period and making it historically accurate and all those things. But just like, what was your thought process in that episode? Yes, we needed a band playing. I believe one of the songs was based on one of their themes, um, but it was sort of a jazz version. I remember the script said like a Duke Ellington-esque combo, which... Duke Ellington was more of a big band um, leader. So I, I helped to focus in on what he meant by that because I was like, I don't know if Duke Ellington is the right reference here. Um, and sure enough, it wasn't really the right reference. It was more like we want a small combo, like three or four players, I believe. Um, Trent and Atticus came up with some basic compositions. I think one was based on... Um, a theme of in in the score and then um and then yeah and then it's as simple as hiring a team of music producers i mean you know maybe trent and atticus maybe didn't have a lot of experience with jazz but it's not hard or unnatural for them because it's just it's just plus okay so they also work with you know collaborators as well like you saw in the oscars with john baptiste but on these ones, they had a collaborator as well. But then we hire 
our music producers, which are these incredible guys named Peter Rotter and Jasper Randall, and they help contract the session, meaning, um, you know, when you have music playing on camera, it's a it's a different level of of work and music supervision, and it involves unions, SAG, AFTRA, AFFM. So a lot of that, and there's those rates getting paid as a musician and stuff, it changes all the time. So it's not something that I really do. I really pretty much um, delegate that to my contractors who are producers, they're music producers. They know all the right musicians. They know all the union rules. They can be on set. They can run the session for the pre-record. They can do all these things. And then I can kind of sit back and go, thank you for uh, making us look good. But yeah, that's, so in that instance, we worked out the compositions. They figured out what they wanted to write, worked out some arrangements with Peter and Jasper, got in the studio, recorded them. Then we send those to set. They were shooting in England. Um, and then the casting people on the ground there, usually extras casting, will then cast sideline musicians to mime along and play. Uh, so it looks like they're they're actually playing, but they're really playing to something that was recorded um, prior to that. Is that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. That makes sense with that, um, like the nostalgia blues track, because yeah. it, it did sound like a mutation of like that reoccurring, yeah. you know, like how the West was one or something. Yes, that's what it was. Good memory. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, also, so I was, when I was um, taking this class, I was really interested in that specific episode, um, and also that the lynching and mugging scene um the in 106 wait 106 yeah 106 um especially that mugging scene when every kind of action hit coincided with the rhythmic hit of the music um if you could talk a little bit about that because i thought that was really unique to the series oh yeah 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 okay when i read that in the script i just wasn't sure how it was going to play out you know but Really, it turned out exactly like it was in the script, you know? I mean, I was like, really? There's going to be a drummer you're going to see, but sometimes... Um, yeah, so I read in an interview that you had to jump through some hoops to get the song Eggman for the finale, or that it hadn't ever been licensed for movies or television before. I was wondering if you kind of took into consideration what, like for songs that have been licensed before, if you took into consideration what other works they had been in before you used them. Oh yeah, for sure. I always pay attention. That's another part of the research that we like to do is like, I mean, well with Eggman, yeah, it's, it wasn't that hard to clear actually, because um, I don't think it had ever been used before. I think that's true. Um, and you know, the Beastie Boys are expensive and, you know, they use so many samples that it's pretty much, and it's from an era of music that is really difficult to clear. But, you know, I, it helps that Trenton Atticus's manager is also the Beastie Boys manager and they're friends of mine. Um, 
And so that helped. Um, but, you know, they're just so organized over there um, with that management team that they were able to clear the song. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm always curious if if songs have been used in the past and how much they've be been featured. And, and if I feel a song is overused, which I constantly get requests for songs that I feel are way overused. Um, and I, and I, I just personally try to steer my showrunners away from that. And let's try to be original. Let's try to, um, let's try to support the, you know, the good people in the music industry and not the same old songs every time, you know, like how many more dollars do we have to put in so-and-so's pocket? You know, let's try to do something cool and different and unique and special and memorable and, and groundbreaking. And um, that will offer some discovery for the viewers. I mean, that's just, that's a total goal, but, but you can't always do that. Sometimes you just need a certain song to tell a story. Um, so, you know, you have to, be open to either way but you know I'm always looking up and if I can't immediately if it's not apparent on something like Wikipedia or something like where a song has been used before I totally ask for licensing history from the licensors I say hey can you tell me if this has been used anywhere in an ad or anywhere you know um Sometimes like if it's just been used once on American Idol and that's it, you know, I don't care. Or, and oftentimes I don't care. Sometimes you want a song that's been played over and over and over because that helps tell the story too. You know, like the like dialogue is like, oh, I'm so sick of this song. And then here you, you hear that song. I mean, you may not get permission to say that. I mean, to use that song if the licensor is um, sensitive about his or her song being overused. <laughs> And sometimes artists will say no because they don't want their song to be used too much. I mean, Greta Van Fleet, there's a song that was used so many times. They said, no more. Thank you for your money. We don't want it anymore. Like no more highway tune. You can't use it anymore. <laughs> anyway, so, but yeah, I, I love, um, I, I, I often need to know the history of a licensing for sure. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Totally. Um, so, um, I kind of along the same lines. I was wondering, like, um, like WC's Claire de Lune was used like throughout the series. Same with um, like Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. Like these, like very like famous things used in movies and stuff. Like, what was your like thought process like sticking those like really like famous tunes into the show? I just think. Um, well, first of all, Damon Lindelof has really championed this repetitive thing. Um, you know, in Leftovers, that was a common thing to use a song over and over um, thematically or even repetitively within a scene to show a montage or something like that. So that's that's definitely a, a Lindelofian uh, <laughs> motif or device. Um, I know it, I know it's been done before. It's just that he he's really good at that. Um, so I, it's just in the spirit of that, that, that we use those things over and over. And, um, you know, we land on something that feels right for a character. Um, definitely um, Jeremy Irons character kind of has this 
you know, this hook into it that, that reflects, you know, those things. And then therefore, if he's always acting like this, then you can always play that song. <laughs> I don't know. It's just fun to, to play with that. Awesome. Those were all of the questions we had for you, um, but we really appreciate it. Those are great questions, you guys. So what are you going to do with this um, podcast? Um, is there a class? Is it a class assignment? Yeah, there's a class. Um, there's, I think, eight or nine episodes coming out. So we're focusing on music, but other people focused on others. Um, Great. So, is it all on Watchmen? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, we all read the original comic and then watched the whole series. So, yeah, it's a really cool class. <laughs> that is amazing. I'm sorry. What, uh, what's the name of the class? I'm watching HBO's Watchmen. <laughs> Thanks so much for meeting with us. Hey, thank you guys. I so appreciate it. It's It's been my pleasure and good luck and keep in touch. And I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was such a cool discussion. In this next segment, Emily, Max, and Professor Newman discuss the music in episode 106 of Watchmen in greater depth. For reference, check out all the music from episode 106 on the website TuneFind using the title of the episode, This Extraordinary Being. There you will be able to listen to a mix of score composed by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and what Liza Richardson calls needle drops, a slang term in the industry to signify the popular songs that are used throughout the series. The term needle drop refers to the moment when the needle drops onto the record in a record player or a jukebox. Trent and Atticus composed a number of original jazz tunes to match the jazz style of the 1930s and 1940s for this episode. In addition, period songs by Duke Ellington, Arthur Kitt, and the African-American group The Ink Spots are featured. One thing I noticed when I was looking back at the songs, during the scene where Will Reeves is beating up clan members at their hideout, the Ink Spots song, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire, is playing. Then, at the end of the episode, Will sets the clan stronghold on fire, while Eartha Kitt's version of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes is playing. So we have fire, then smoke. Coincidence? I think not. I cannot wait to hear more about the music in the episode 106. I'm Professor Kathy Newman. And I'm Emily Finger. I'm Max Robbins. We're going to get right into it. Uh, Emily, you focused on the popular music that was in the show. There was There's two kinds of music in the show. Uh, one um, I've, I've learned is called Needle Drop, and that's where the producers, uh, the music supervisor, Liza Richardson and her team, found specific popular songs to go with specific scenes. And then the other kind of music is called score. And we know that was composed by Trent Reznor uh, and his partner, Atticus Ross. So uh, Emily, um, which song did you focus on and why? Yeah, um, the popular song that really grabbed my attention was 
I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire by the Ink Spots, which appears in uh, episode 106. Um, it just really caught my attention because it's such a kind of almost calming song when you listen to it and they put it in this very brutal scene. Um, how do you think that song worked as a background to such an important and violent scene um, when, you know, Will invades that KKK meeting place? Um, I think that it worked by adding like a much deeper meaning to the scene. Um, instead of just watching this violent scene um, where Will um, essentially beats up and kills uh, multiple KKK members, um, it adds this meaning behind it of him kind of starting a revolution and growing into this character of hooded justice more. Yeah, I think that's a correct interpretation of the scene, Emily. But one thing that kind of confuses me is that the lyrics are sort of modest. It's a love song. And this male singer is singing, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. So it's kind of like the lyrics are sort of modest, but at the same time, we're seeing Will go from just maybe sort of fighting for himself to almost fighting for a cause. So how do you think those lyrics go with the scene? Sure. Um, I think it's great to note that it is a love song because it can show just how a scene can change the meaning of a song um, in any piece of media, not just in The Watchmen. Um, but I think these lyrics work because I think when Will kind of begins his journey before he even is hooded justice, just when he's fighting that mugger, he's doing it almost because he feels helpless. He's doing it kind of to create meaning for himself. It's almost a very selfish act. And as he becomes, you know, thrust deeper into this persona of hooded justice, it becomes an act meant to help, you know, all the black people around him to help his community rather than just himself. And so this, you know, idea of instead of just starting a flame, he wants to set the world on fire. It's lighting a match that creates this bigger, um, almost domino effect, um, kind of as you see with protests today. Yeah, and, um, and just before that, going off that point, I think that um, in Watchmen, a lot of these scenes have a great contrast between the visual and the music because um, there's a lot of times where it might be whimsical when the visual is quite dark and threatening um, and it's almost jarring to watch something like that. Um, and there might even be humor in some of these really horrifying scenes. So I, I think that's quite effective. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Emily, uh, what did you learn about the group that sang the song? Yeah, sure. Um, the song is by the group, the Ink Spots. Um, they were a vocal jazz quartet. Um, they gained fame around the 1930s and 40s. Um, and they're an interesting group because they were widely accepted by both white and black communities. Um, and they were also the first African-Americans to appear on television, um, the first black performers on the Ed Sullivan show. Um, so they were kind of a group that really broke barriers for um, the black music community and just the black community on media or in media in general. Um, and so it was really interesting. I think that, you know, they really did their research in picking this group because Will is this kind of barrier breaker and this group was as well. 
And so they used uh, the ink spots, I think, three or four times in episode 106 following Will's journey. Yeah, that's so fascinating, Emily. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, this song was popular right around our entry into World War II, like right around 1941. Yeah, that's correct. Emily, if you could uh, just remind us a little bit what you've learned about the history of the style, this style that we come to to call now barbershop quartet. Sure. Um, The Ink Spots were obviously a more modern version of a barbershop quartet, but um, barbershop was originated and popularized by African-Americans. They would hang out near actual barbershops and sing songs together. Um, And the music industry wanted to like reach its largest audience with barbershop and its largest audience at the time was white people who could afford, you know, to buy records, to have radios in their homes. And so it started with white men imitating black barbershop quartets by performing in blackface um, and then moved on to the barbershop really being taken over by white men. So instead of a group of four black men, it became a group of white men. Um, And that's how a lot of people see barbershop quartets today. Yeah, that's so interesting uh, that in some ways, then the history of barbershop music kind of parallels some other histories of American music that have roots in Black traditions, the Black community. Um, Max, how would you compare the history of barbershop, as we've learned it from Emily, to what you know about the history of jazz? Sure. Um yeah, there's there's a lot of parallels. Um, so jazz was a fundamentally African American music. Um, its foundation is in African style drum beats and Caribbean rhythm. Um, yeah, and like uh, kind of like the mid 1800s, uh, black slaves from Africa, Caribbean, and the American South would gather on Sundays in New Orleans's Congo Square to play music. Um, and as it kind of progressed. Um, white people claim to have created jazz um, because they were the first to record it. Um, so, you know, these black jazz musicians were getting ripped off financially and didn't get full recognition and compensation for being the inventors of jazz as like this African-American culture. Um, so it's kind of like, it was taken from them in a sense. Just a thought that popped into my mind was, there's kind of the difference between software and hardware. Like the the music was so popular and and the music industry wanted to take advantage of that, but African-Americans weren't necessarily owners within the music industry. So in both of these musical styles, we see that African-Americans originated the music, but then weren't always able to profit from it uh, the way the white dominated music industry was. Um, so Max, I was wondering, um, how you saw Trent Reznor's role as, you know, a composer for Watchmen, creating a lot of the scores for the Watchmen. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I had, I had listened to some interviews with Trent talking, um, and overall he had kind of said like when he saw a rough cut of the premiere, it started to become clear that this role of the music would be, it would be more in your face rather than like the supporting role in the background. Um, the music of the show plays almost an equal part to the content, which is, I think is unique to the series. Um, 
and he had said that he hadn't ever like written a jazz standard um and this is kind of like something new for him um and he was talking about how these like composing these songs for these scenes was also about this like subtextual understanding of what's happening um you know our entire american musical history is based on black music um it, you know it's in that lynching scene it's not just about lynching it's about black history too so he was really able to like connect this culture and the music to the content of the show yeah i find that fascinating max and just to kind of remind our audience what's happening in episode six so we have popular music from the time period like the ink spots but then trent reznor actually writes some jazz compositions that fuse some of the themes from other episodes with the style of jazz that was popular at the time. And so, um, Max, could you describe one of those compositions, the one that we hear in the bar? Sure, yeah. The um, So, Trent and Atticus had composed this um, tune called Nostalgia Blues in episode 106 for this bar scene. And it's almost like a mutation of how the West was really one, which is this reoccurring theme throughout the entire series, um, which gave like really good cohesion to all the other episodes um, and kind of it kind of bridged the, um, the past with the present, which was obviously what the whole nostalgia thing was. Yeah, nostalgia blues tying into the prescription drug nostalgia, right? That that um, Angela uh, takes and sort of then becomes the symbol for intergenerational trauma. Um, something else I wanted to ask you about, Max, is what about this the jazz music that accompanies the lynching scene where we see young Will Reeves, but then also sometimes Angela Abar. Uh, they both kind of switch out in that role as we see uh, Will Reeves's white police colleagues basically trying to to hang him and kill him. Sure, yeah. I mean, so there's lynching scene and then there's Will Reeves immediately after with this mugging scene. And um, it's, it's, a pre it's pretty cool with, with um, every single... Um, hit and the music kind of coincides with like an action hit of the fist um, and it, it's almost like choreographed a little bit it seems um, it was pretty organic which was which was really cool about this episode in general um, it was it was an organic feel and it kind of um, it was almost improvisational in nature and the way that it was shot and filmed and um kind of surrounding like with every kind of instrument giving off to the other was Angela giving back to the will in the past um so it was a very like fluid episode and the jazz music like was a really nice like complement to that interesting almost like jazz as a metaphor sort of for the way that the actors are playing off of each other and handing each other the the role or the the kind of the spotlight yeah you're also making me think, Max, when I think about um, 30s and 40s style comics, you see the word pow, you know, bam, bop. <laughs> so it's almost like the music is punctuating the physical violence in that scene. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a good contrast to, to what Emily was talking about before with almost like an ironic song to go with like this, like killing um, with this jazz music. It wasn't, it wasn't grim. It was almost, it was almost lively and upbeat. Um, so it, it gave a little dissonance in watching it because like, it's this horrifying scene with kind of like this kind of exciting music. Emily, did you have a question or an observation that you wanted to add? Yeah, I'm just thinking about how um, that's just a theme, I think, overall in Watchmen is music that maybe shouldn't really go with what's happening on scene. But when you take a deeper look at it, it adds a lot of meaning that really coincides with the political messages and statements that the show is trying to make. Um, I think you can see that all the way from episode one to the final episode. Um, they use, you know, the Beastie Boys Eggman, which is in my mind, almost a more whimsical song to this very serious ending where we're seeing Angela kind of realize her new position in the world. Um, and I just think it's, it shows that this wasn't just random choices sprinkled throughout the series. Um, they were very, you know, purposeful with the music that they chose, not just in episode 106, but everywhere. And Emily, is that something that was confirmed for you in talking to Liza Richardson? Like, what did you kind of learn about her intentionality in her process? Yeah, that was um, really an important part to what Liza said she does. Um, Liza said she, you know, looks into every aspect of the song before she chooses it. She looks into the history of the song, uh, the deeper meaning behind the lyrics or just the meaning of the lyrics if they're not using a song uh, written in English. Um, she also said she looks at, you know, where the song has been used before, how many times it has been used before, you know, in what other pieces of media it has been used. And so, you know, Liza really confirmed that a lot of work goes into picking what music goes into the show because they want it to coincide with the values that they have and the statements that they are trying to make with their show. Yeah, that suggests to me that they didn't want music that was overwritten, that was sort of, that had too much meaning or too much different meaning already laden into it. But Max, you asked Liza specifically about Claire de Lune and, and why they ended up using that, which is kind of such a famous piece of music and has been used in so many uh, movies and television shows. Yeah, um, she had kind of made the point that um, obviously they didn't want to overuse certain popular music, but she said for those specific scenes, she thought it was so fitting. Um, and especially with like Adrian's char character, for example, like it, he was... Um, when he spoke in his mannerisms, it almost like it, it worked perfectly with it. And she thought that was just, that was the essence he was giving off. So she, she said she had to use that. It was so campy and over the top that it, that it could sort of handle having such a familiar piece of music in a certain way. Definitely. Um, so Max, as we're coming to a close here, I wondered if you could reflect on sort of how you how you're thinking about the music in episode six or Watchmen as a whole and 
what the musical story is that kind of matches the story about racism that Watchmen is also trying to tell? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I kind of thought that it was it was a good musical or cultural outlet to tell stories about America's racist past intersecting with America's racist present, which was um, obviously greatly shown in episode 106 with these flashbacks and the switching between Angela and Will of these like these like this intergenerational trauma. Um, and it, it kind of took me back to the first episode um, of the Tulsa riots and this black victimhood, um, the history of it, you know, the insurance companies and the city government refused to compensate these black Tulsans for the lost property. Um, so it, you know, all these themes of loss and, you know, it's, unfairness and um honestly justice obviously with will and how he was feeling and i think it all connects to that intergenerational trauma and how um this racism kind of lasts and it takes different forms between that original flashback and what angela is experiencing in the present um and gives this like nice like overview of like you know, white supremacy and racism and how that can be connected to the past and present. Yeah, the the work that the two of you have done, you're making me think that Black music tells sort of simultaneously the story about Black achievement, Black resilience, Black creativity, Black strength, and Black joy. But it's also a story about uh, Black exclusion, Black oppression, um, white appropriation of black culture so that the some of these musical choices have the best of America where we are this kind of integrated society that that celebrates achievement but then also uh, the racism that we keep thinking we've overcome but that Watchmen reminds us that we have not. Wow, I learned so much from Emily and Max. That last point is fascinating. Watchmen is a story about racial exclusion and appropriation, but it also celebrates Black artists through its choice of songs and styles of music. I really enjoyed learning about the history of the Ink Spots. Three of their songs appeared in the episode, and some of those songs have been updated on TikTok with a hit modern beat added in underneath. I also enjoyed hearing about the process that Trent and Atticus went through to adapt earlier melodies in the score to the jazz soundtrack of this episode. Recently, Trent and Atticus and the composer John Baptiste won an Oscar for their soundtrack for the film Soul. It's all so interesting. And to all of our listeners, thanks for being here today. To listen to the next episode, check out our location here on Anchor, as well as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check out our class website at lps.library.cmu.edu slash WP slash Watchmen. See you next time on Tartan's Watch the Watchmen.